Welcome, everyone, to episode 78 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another wild unsolved murder for you guys today. But first, I just wanted to ask a favor of you all. I recently hit 50,000 total plays on my podcast, and I would absolutely love to hit 100,000 before the end of the year. We've still got just over six months till the end of the year, so please share the podcast with friends and family that enjoy this kind of content to help get us to 100,000 total plays. Now let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story is a short one, as there's very little information out there. I'm sharing the story in hopes that someone out there may know something because this is still an active case and any help would be great. On April 15, 2012, 15-year-old Chelsea Johnson was found murdered near a creek in Fairfield, Ohio. She was stabbed to death. Her mother reported that she was last seen on Sunday, April 15th, and reported her missing the next day. Just a few hours later, her body was found. If anyone has any information that could help solve this case, please reach out to the Fairfield, Ohio Police Department, and let's try to help find this girl's killer. Our next story is about the death of Chandra Levy. Chandra Ann Levy was an intern at the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. She disappeared in May 2001. She was presumed murdered after her skeletal remains were found in Rock Creek Park in May 2002. The case attracted attention from the American news media for several years. Due to a miscommunication, the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia failed to follow its own search parameters in Rock Creek Park, leaving Levy's body to decompose for a year. Further, the MPD had been informed, but soon dismissed the information, that Ingmar Gwandik, I'm going to butcher all kinds of names, already arrested for attacking women in Rock Creek Park, had confessed to attacking Levy. The MPD instead put much of its focus on the revelation that Levy had been having an affair with Congressman Gary Condit, a married Democrat then serving his fifth term 
representing California's 18th Congressional District and a senior member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Condit was in meetings with the Vice President at the time that Levy disappeared and was never named as a suspect by police. He was eventually cleared of any involvement. Due to the cloud of suspicion raised by the intense media focus on the missing intern and the later revelation of the affair, Condent lost his bid for re-election in 2002. Following a series of investigative reports by the Washington Post in 2008, the MPD followed up and finally obtained a warrant on March 3, 2009 to arrest Ingmar Gwandik identified and dismissed by the MPD eight years earlier. He had been convicted of assaulting two other women in Rock Creek Park around the time of Levy's disappearance and was still in prison on those convictions when the arrest warrant on Levy's death was issued. Prosecutors alleged that Gwandik had attacked and tied up Levy in a remote area of the park and left her to die of dehydration or exposure. In November of 2010, Gwandik was convicted of murdering Levy. He was sentenced in February 2011 to 60 years in prison. In June 2015, however, Gwandik was granted a new trial. On July 28, 2016, prosecutors announced that they would not proceed with the case against Gwandik and would instead seek to have him deported. In episode 3 of Chandra Levy, an American murder mystery, on the case, it is mentioned that in March 2017, Gwandik lost his bid to remain in the United States and was reported to his native El Salvador on May 5, 2017. Levy's murder remains unsolved. Chandra Levy was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to Robert and Susan Levy. The family then moved to Modesto, California, where she attended Grace M. Davis High School. At the time of her disappearance, her parents were members of Congregation Beth Shalom, a conservative Jewish synagogue. She attended San Francisco State University, where she earned a degree in journalism. After interning for the California Bureau of Secondary Education and working in the office of Los Angeles Mayor Richard Rodorian, she began attending the University of Southern California to earn a master's degree in public administration. As part of her final semester of study, Chandra moved to Washington, D.C. to become a paid intern with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. In October 2000, she began her internship at the Bureau's headquarters, where she was assigned to the Public Affairs Division. Her supervisor, Bureau spokesperson Dan Doon was impressed with Chandra's work, especially her handling of media inquiries regarding the upcoming execution of Timothy McVeigh, convicted of bombing the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Chandra's internship was abruptly terminated in April of 2001 because her academic eligibility was found to have expired in December 2000. She had already completed her master's degree requirements and was scheduled to return to California in May 2001 for graduation. Chandra was last seen on May 1st, 2001. The MPD was first alerted on May 6th when Chandra's parents called from Modesto to report they had not heard from their daughter in five days. 
police called hospitals and visited Chandra's apartment in DuPont Circle that day, finding no indication of foul play. On May 7th, Chandra's father told the police that his daughter had been having an affair with a U.S. congressman and the next day stated that he believed the congressman to be U.S. Representative Gary Condit. Chandra's aunt also called the police and told them that Chandra had confided in her about the affair. Police obtained a warrant on May 10th to conduct a formal search of Chandra's apartment. Investigators found her credit cards, identification, and cell phone left behind in her purse, all with partially packed suitcases. The answering machine was full with messages left by her relatives and two from Condit. A police sergeant tried to examine Chandra's laptop and inadvertently corrupted the internet search data as he was not a trained technician. Computer experts took a month to reconstruct the data to determine that the laptop was used on the morning of May 1st to search for websites related to Amtrak, Baskin Robbins, Condit, Southwest Airlines, and a weather report from the Washington Post. Her final search at 12.59 p.m. was for Alsace-Lorraine, a region in France. A particular search at 11.33 a.m was for information about Rock Creek Park in the Washington Post Entertainment Guide. Then at 11.34, she clicked a link to bring up a map of the park. Detectives later theorized that she might have met someone at the Pierce Klingle Mansion, which houses the park headquarters. On July 25, 2001, three Washington, D.C. police sergeants and 28 police cadets searched along Glover Road in the park but failed to find evidence related to Chandra. Later, a second attempt found nothing. Chandra's parents and friends held numerous vigils and press conferences in an attempt to bring Chandra home. Controversy surrounding her disappearance drew the attention of the American news media. Condit, a married man who represented the congressional district in which the Chandra family lived, at first denied that he had an affair with her. Although police stated that Condit was not a suspect, Levy's family said that they felt Condit was being evasive and possibly hiding information about the matter. Unidentified police sources alleged that Condit had admitted to an affair with Chandra during an interview with law enforcement officers on July 7, 2001. He described her to police as a vegetarian who avoided drinking and smoking. He thought that Chandra was going to return to Washington, D.C. after her graduation and was surprised to find out that the lease on her apartment had ended. Investigators searched Condit's apartment on July 10th. They questioned flight attendant Anne-Marie Smith, who claimed that Condit told her she did not need to speak to the Federal Bureau of Investigation about his personal life. Federal officials began investigating Condit for possible obstruction of justice as Smith, who was also involved in an affair with him. Upset by leaks to the media, Condit refused to submit to a polygraph test by the Washington, D.C. police. His attorney asserted that Condit passed a test administered by a privately hired examiner on July 13th. He avoided answering direct questions during a televised interview on August 23rd, with the news anchor Connie Chung on the ABC News program Primetime Thursday. 
Intensive coverage continued until news of the September 11th attacks superseded the media's coverage of the Levy case. In a nationwide Fox News poll of 900 registered voters conducted in July of 2001, 44% of American respondents thought that Condit was involved in Levy's disappearance, and 27% felt that he should resign. 51% of the respondents believed that he was acting as if he was guilty, while 13% felt that he should run again for office. A poll sample taken from Condit's congressional district held a more favorable view of him. On March 5, 2002, Condit lost a Democratic primary election for his congressional seat to his former aide, then-Assemblyman Dennis Cardoza, with the levy controversy being cited as a contributing factor. He was subpoenaed to appear on April 1, 2002, before a District of Columbia grand jury investigating the disappearance. The date was kept, a carefully guarded secret to avoid further leaks. Condit left Congress at the end of his term on January 3, 2003, after failing to win his re-election bid. On May 22, 2002, around 9.30 a.m., skeletal remains, which matched Levy's dental records, were discovered by a man who was walking his dog and looking for turtles in Rock Creek Park near Broad Branch Creek, Washington, D.C. Detectives found bones and personal items scattered but not buried in a forested area along a steep incline. A sports bra, sweatshirt, leggings, and tennis shoes were among the evidence that was recovered. Although police had previously searched over half of the 1,754-acre main section of the park, the wooded slope where Levy's remains were eventually found had not been searched. Police commanders ordered the search perimeters to be within 100 yards of each road and trail, but due to a miscommunication, the officers only searched within 100 yards of every road. The remains were found about four miles from Levy's apartment. After a preliminary autopsy was performed, Washington, D.C. police announced that there was sufficient evidence to open a homicide investigation. On May 28, the D.C. medical examiner Jonathan Arden officially declared Chandra's death a homicide, but said, There's less work with here than I would like. It's possible we will never know specifically how she died. Arden found damage to her hyoid bone, suggesting that she was possibly strangled, but he did not deem it to be conclusive evidence of such a cause of death. On June 6, after the police completed their search, private investigators hired by the levees found her shin bone with some twisted wire about 25 yards from the other remains. Police Chief Charles H. Ramsey said, It is unacceptable that these items were not located. In September 2001, D.C. police and federal prosecutors were contacted by the lawyer of an informant held in D.C. jail who claimed to have knowledge of Levy's killer. The informant, whose identity was protected for his safety, said that Ingmar Gwandik, a 20-year-old illegal alien from El Salvador who was also being held in the jail, told him that Condit paid him $25,000 to kill Chandra. Investigators ruled out the story about Condit, 
because Gwandek had already admitted to assaulting two other women in the same park where Chandra's remains were found. Gwandek failed to show up for work on the day of Levy's disappearance. His former landlady recalled that his face appeared scratched and bruised at around that time. The investigators on the Levy case did not interview the other Rock Creek Park victims. Police Chief Ramsey avoided calling Gwandek a suspect and described him as a person of interest, telling reporters not to make too big a deal about him. Assistant Chief Terrence Gaynor said that if Gwandek had been considered a suspect, D.C. police would have been after him, like flies on honey. Gwandek denied attacking Chandra. On November 28th, the FBI had the informant take a polygraph test, which he failed. A polygraph test on Gwandek administered on February 4th, 2002, returned inconclusive results that were officially ruled not deceptive. Because neither the informant nor Gwandek was fluent in English, D.C. Chief Detective Jack Barrett said that he would have had preferred polygraph test to have been administered by bilingual examiners who were unavailable at the time. When Judge Noel Ancatel Kramer was asked about Gwandek's potential connection to the Levy homicide, she responded, This is such a satellite issue. To me, it doesn't have anything to do with this case. Kramer sentenced Gwandek to 10 years in prison for his attacks on two other women at Rock Creek Park. He was sent to the U.S. Penitentiary, Big Sandy, near Inez, Kentucky, and was later transferred to the U.S. Penitentiary at Victorville, California. The Levy homicide remained listed as a cold case until 2006, when Kathy Lanier succeeded Ramsey as D.C. police chief. Lanier replaced the lead detective on the case with three veteran investigators who had more homicide experience. In 2007, the editors of the Washington Post assigned a new team of reporters to take a year to re-examine the Levy case. The resulting series of articles published during the summer of 2008 focused on the past failure of the police to fully investigate Gwandek's connection to the attacks in Rock Creek Park. In September of 2008, investigators searched Gwandek's federal prison cell in California and found a photo of Chandra that he had saved from magazines. Police interviewed acquaintances of Gwandek and witnesses of the other Rock Creek Park incidents. On March 3, 2009, the Superior Court of the District of Columbia issued an arrest warrant for Gwandek. He was returned to the custody of of the District of Columbia Department of Corrections on April 20th via the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City. Two days later, he was charged in D.C. with Levy's murder. He was indicted by a grand jury on six counts, kidnapping, first-degree murder com committed during a kidnapping, attempted first-degree sexual abuse, first-degree murder committed during a sexual offense, attempted robbery, and first-degree murder committed during a robbery. Gwandek pled not guilty at his arraignment, where a trial date was initially set for January 27, 2010. His lawyers argued that Gwandek's federal prison cell was outside the jurisdiction of a court-ordered search. After errors in processing contaminated some of the gathered evidence with DNA from employees of the prosecution, the state 
the start date of the trial at the H. Carl Moultrie Courthouse was moved to October 4th, 2010. On October 18th, 2010, jury selection commenced in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia before Judge Gerald Fisher, Assistant U.S. Attorney Fernando Sanchez, presented the names of potential witnesses for the trial, including FBI agent Brad Garrett and the two women whom Gwandik was convicted of assaulting. At the start of the trial, the prosecution's case was expected to take around four weeks, and the defense was expected to take one day. On October 25th and 26th, Hallie Schilling and Christy Winged testified about being attacked by Gwandik while independently jogging in Rock Creek Park. Winged recounted that Gwandik grabbed her from behind, dragged her down a ravine, and held a knife against her face. On October 26, 2010, Levy's then 64-year-old father, Robert, took the stand and refuted statements about his past suspicions of Condon. Robert Levy testified that he told authorities during the early years of the investigation that his daughter Chandra would have been too cautious to jog in the woods alone, but said that he no longer believed this to be true. He said that he also told the police that his daughter and Condit had a five-year plan between them to get married. In retrospect, Robert Levy admitted, I just said whatever came to mind just to point to him as the villain. Levy added that he had been convinced that Condit was guilty until we learned about this character here, referring to Gwandik. On November 1st, Condit testified at the trial and was asked on at least three occasions if he and Chandra had been involved in a sexual relationship. He replied, I'm not going to respond to that question out of privacy for myself and Chandra. FBI biologist Alan Gusty testified that semen found on underwear from Levy's apartment contained sperm matching Condit's DNA profile. Prosecution witness Armando Morales, who shared a cell with Gwandik at the U.S. Penitentiary in Kentucky, testified that Gwandik was concerned about being transferred between prisons in 2006 because of inmate violence against suspected rapists. Morales stated that Gwandik, a fellow member of the Mara Salvatrucha gang, confided to him that he had killed Levy while trying to rob her, but said that he did not rape her. The prosecution rested their case on November 10th, while dropping two out of the six charges against him, sexual assault and murder associated with that assault. On November 15th, the defense rested its case without calling Gwandik to the stand. Other prison witnesses called by the defense refuted Morales' testimonies. Jose Manuel Alanis said that Gwandik made no mention of rape or murder while sharing a cell with both him and Morales at the penitentiary in Kentucky. Alanis admitted under cross-examination that he didn't want to be too nosy and was often asleep at the prison while recovering from a gunshot wound. The prosecution dropped two more charges because the statute of limitations had passed, kidnapping and attempted robbery. During closing arguments for the remaining charges of the first-degree murder committed during a kidnapping and during a robbery, Prosecutor Amanda Haynes contended that Gwandik bound and gagged Levy after attacking her, leaving her to die of dehydration or exposure in the park. 
defense attorney, Santha Sonnenberg, countered with the lack of any DNA evidence connecting Gwandik to the crime scene, calling the prosecution's case fiction. Sonnenberg suggested that Levy had been murdered elsewhere, with her dead body being dumped in the park. The jury began deliberations on November 17th. Scheduled proceedings of the case met delays because of increased security at the courthouse. After two days of deliberations, all but one juror had voted to convict Gwandik. On the third day, the jury asked Judge Gerald Fisher to clarify the definition of assault. Fisher responded that any physical injury could legally be considered an assault, regardless of how small. On November 22, 2010, the jury found Gwandik guilty of both remaining counts of first-degree murder. After the trial, a juror said the testimony of Morales was decisive in reaching the verdict. The conviction was called a miracle for having been reached with only circumstantial evidence. Gladys Weatherspoon, who had been previously represented Gwandik in the 2001 assault case, stated that she was troubled by the jury's verdict. She said, I think they were going to convict anyway. They felt bad for that woman, the mom. She's sitting in there every day. At a post-trial press conference, Susan Levy said, There's always going to be a feeling of sadness. I can surely tell you it ain't closure. Since the conclusion of the trial, Susan Levy has acted to keep photographic evidence of her daughter's remains sealed from the news media. On February 1, 2011, Gwandik's attorneys requested a new trial on the grounds that the verdict had been improperly attained. The 17-page filing claimed that the prosecutors had appealed to the emotions of the jury, using references to facts not in evidence. The motion also alleged that one juror who did not take notes had breached the judge's instructions not to be influenced by another juror's notes. The prosecution opted, opposed a retrial, arguing that the issue regarding the notes was no more than a technicality that did not have a significant effect on the verdict. Gwandik faced a minimum penalty of 30 years to a maximum of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. In seeking the maximum possible sentence, the prosecutor stated that Gwandik is unable to control himself and thus will always remain a danger to women. A memo submitted by the prosecution in February 2011 cited Gwandik's harassment of female staff in prison, including soliciting a nurse and masturbating in front of guards. Assistant U.S. Attorney Fernando Sanchez disclosed that he had traveled to El Salvador with a detective to investigate allegations that Gwandik had fled his native country because of suspected attacks against local women dating back to 1999. During the sentencing hearing on February 11th, Gwandik said to Levy's family, I'm sorry for what happened to your daughter, and insisted on his innocence. Before Judge Gerald Fisher remained reminded Susan Levy to address the court instead of the defendant, Levy said to him, Did you really take her life? Look me in the eye and tell me. Fisher denied Gwandik's motion for retrial and handed down a sentence of 60 years in prison, stating that Gwandik will be a danger for some time. He's a sexual predator. Gwandik repeated his innocence 
during his sentencing. He had maintained his innocence in the years since the trial. On February 25, 2011, public defender James Klein filed an appeal of Guantic's convic conviction with the District of Columbia Court of Appeals. According to the court's annual report, appeals take an average of 588 days to reach resolution. In December of 2012 and January 2013, a set of secret hearings was made known to the public, but the subject of the meetings was sealed by the judge. After a third hearing in February, the judge in the case unsealed transcripts from the previous hearings, which revealed that Klein was seeking a new trial based on new evidence in the case. A fourth hearing was scheduled for April 2013. In May 2015, prosecutors dropped their opposition to a new trial. This resulted from defense claims that the prosecution's star witness, Armando Morales, had perjured himself on the stand. The defense contended that prosecutors failed to disclose that Morales was a jailhouse informant with a reputation for being untrustworthy. Morales had denied ever being an informant. The defense also argued that Morales made up Guandic's confession in order to boost his stock with prosecutors. On June 3rd, the defense said that a new witness, a neighbor, called 911 at 4.37 a.m. on the last day Chandra was alive in order to report hearing a blood-curdling scream possibly coming from Chandra's apartment. The following day, Judge Gerald Fisher granted a motion for the new trial. Judge Robert E. Morin set the retrial of Guandic for March 1, 2016, but at that time it was moved to October 11th. In November 2015, prosecutors told a D.C. Superior Court judge that their office had failed to turn over documents to the defense before the defendant's first trial. In December 2015, defense attorneys argued in new court filings that the charges should be dismissed because of those errors. Specifically, the defense argued that they had only received two of three pages of a memo detailing prosecutors' contacts with Morales, a trial he had testified that he had never cooperated with law enforcement prior to the Levy case. The missing first page noted that he had previously approached law enforcement to discuss gang activity, including the actions of gangs to which he belonged. The defense argued this information had been purposely withheld from them, as it might suggest that Morales had shaded his testimony to gain favor with prosecutors. On July 28, 2016, prosecutors announced that they would not proceed with the case against Guandic and would instead seek to have him deported. According to the Washington Post, prosecutors lost confidence in the case after learning that Morales, who now lives in Maryland, was secretly recorded admitting lying on the witness stand during the 2010 trial. Babs Prawler, the woman who made the recording, turned it over to the police. The U.S. Attorney's Office said only that based on new information that had come to light during the previous week, there was no longer enough evidence to go forward with the retrial. In Episode 3 of An American Murder Mystery, on the case, it is mentioned that in March 2017, Guandic lost his bid to remain in the United States and was deported to his native El Salvador in May. Defense lawyers for Guandic believed that 
Sanchez and Haynes had deliberately failed to turn over the first page of the Morales memo. They filed a complaint to that effect with the Justice, Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility. After investigating for two years, OPR found no ethical or legal violations. Sanchez left the Justice Department to work at the Securities and Exchange Commission, and Haynes retired. In 2020, the District of Columbia's Bar Office of Disciplinary Counsel announced that it would investigate the allegations and brought charges the following May. At the hearing, both attorneys testified on their behalf. Haynes believed that the full memo had been turned over to the defense and they had lost the first page. She did not think that there would have been any reason for prosecutors to withhold it as it did not seriously damage their case. But she sometimes delayed turning over more specific information on witnesses to the defense since at some trials that had led to those witnesses getting killed. Both she and Sanchez testified that they had clashed over what to turn over to the defense and when, since at the time there were no clear rules in the Justice Department about it, leading to greater clashes between the two about who would question Morales at trial and handle the case's closing argument. Sanchez had originally been scheduled to do both, but Haynes reassigned those tasks to herself, leaving him feeling marginalized. Three months later, ODC announced that preliminary conclusion that the two had violated bar rules requiring the prosecutors disclose potentially exculpatory evidence to defense lawyers and recommended both be suspended from practicing law for six months. Both contested that punishment, with Haynes' attorney calling it unhinged from both reality and from what any precedent in law or logic. She and Sanchez have denied any wrongdoing. Levy's death has had a lasting impact, due in part to the efforts of her family and friends. Chandra's disappearance came after a number of other high-profile cases that led to the creation of resources for missing young adults. For example, Levy's parents quickly requested help from the Carol Sund Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation, a nonprofit group that was established in Modesto after three female tourists disappeared from a 1999 trip to Yosemite National Park and were later found slain. That foundation, which offered the Levy's staff support and contributed towards a cash reward for information about Chandra's disappearance, was merged into the Lacey and Connor Search and Rescue Fund in 2009. Susan Levy had previously participated in the efforts to find Lacey Peterson, another missing woman from Modesto. In 1997, when Kristen Modafferi mysteriously disappeared from the San Francisco Bay Area just three weeks after her 18th birthday, her parents turned to their congresswoman for help because they were in ineligible to receive help from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. As a result, Congress enacted Kristen's Law in October 2000, which established the National Center for Missing Adults within the U.S. Department of Justice in order to coordinate such missing persons cases. By the time Levy disappeared, institutions were in place in order to provide her family with support and assist in a nationwide search to locate her. 
although the Levy family quickly moved to mobilize all such available resources, including offering a cash reward for information, hiring its own investigators, and seeking media attention. Those efforts to locate Chandra Levy or find her killer were overshadowed by the speculation which surrounded her possible relationship with Condit. Susan Levy later joined forces with Donna Rayleigh, the mother of another young woman who disappeared from Modesto in 1999, to form Wings of Protection, a support group for people with missing loved ones. The Marianne Liebert Company, the publisher of the Journal of Women's Health, and gender-based medicine presented its annual Criterion Award to Susan Levy for her work with Wings of Protection in May of 2002. Newsweek magazine stated that the media may have become more skeptical of herd mentality and open to alternative suspects after the Levy case. The D.C. police claimed that it would have discovered Levy's body earlier if not for a miscommunication regarding the scope of the search. Commanders had ordered that a search be conducted within 100 yards of each road and trail in Rock Creek Park, but searches were only made within 100 yards of each road, causing the body to remain undiscovered for a longer period of time. Both the Chief of Detectives Jack Barrett and the Chief of Police, police Charles Ramsey have since left the force in D.C. Ramsey became head of the Philadelphia Police Department. Barrett, who became an analyst for an intelligence support firm in Arlington, Virginia, stated in hindsight that the media had imposed enormous amounts of pressure on the D.C. police. Morales, who was serving time for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine and crack cocaine, was scheduled to be released on August 5, 2016. Condit retired from politics and moved to Phoenix, Arizona with his wife to manage real estate and open two Baskin-Robbins franchises, which have since closed. So what do you guys think? Did the congressman hire somebody to kill her? Or did they have the right guy the whole time and they let him go? It's it's a tough one to imagine. I feel like they had the right guy, they had the man that killed her, and they deported him. Whether the congressman was involved, that's another question. But with all of that said, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. The last I checked, I was at almost 370. I'm growing slow, slower than I'd like, but I'm still growing. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.